Hello everybody, Mitch Michaels here. It's time for another edition of the Money Mitch Effect. Big, big show today. We are in finals mode. Stanley Cup final, NBA finals. And I got a pair of guests to break down. Going to the experts as we move along in these series. First up, Eric Roberts, a Fox Sports Radio producer out here in LA, calls in to discuss game four of the Stanley Cup final and the Capitals. The Washington Capitals were one game away from their first championship ever. They've won three straight games against the Vegas Golden Knights. We break down how they were able to do it. Ovechkin being on a mission. Kuznetsov, Backstrom, Holtby showing out. And what the Vegas Golden Knights can do to come back. This team, the Cinderella story, finally facing some adversity. Would have to win three straight games to win the Cup. They would get two of them in Vegas. So we break down that, all the action, and more in the Stanley Cup. And then Bradford Bruns, my good buddy from St. Louis, calls in. To break down the NBA Finals, and man, what went down in Game 1 is probably going to haunt the Cavs for a long, long time. We talk about that. We talk about the Steph Curry game in Game 2, 9 final, 9 threes to set a Finals record. What LeBron James can do, if anything more can he do to help his team out. We break down the Finals, Cavs, and Warriors Round 4. On the Money Mitch Effect, that show, this show, starts right now. All right, now joining us on the Money Mitch Effect to talk to the Stanley Cup final front of the show, Fox Sports Radio producer Eric Roberts. Eric, thanks for joining the Money Mitch Effect. Oh, it's always a pleasure, man. I thought I was coming on to talk uh, MLB baseball draft. I mean, that's going on. That's what everybody's talking about today, right? <laughs> yeah, I did. Uh, I did see. Uh, I did see uh, the update on my phone. I know about five or six players in the draft pool, um, so I wouldn't be much good after you know the first thirty minutes of the draft, but. Hey, you know, far be it for me to criticize a sport that does the draft in the middle of the season. It just makes it a little hard to keep up with. Oh yeah, definitely. My buddy uh, came over to watch the uh, the Caps game, and he's like, "Hey, can we have a can we throw up a uh, uh, like a computer over there so we can watch the draft?" I'm like, "Which draft, dude? <laughs> Baseball?" I'm like, "Oh, isn't there like so hundred rounds so in weird. that draft? I feel like there's like, oh yeah, more it, rounds it goes than for like believe. it feels like it goes for like a month long, and like these kids are like 18 years old coming out of high school. It's it's weird, man. It's all around weird." Oh, man. Well, I mean, we'll be getting to just baseball season here in a little bit when hockey and basketball finish, but we still do have some hockey, and maybe not for much longer. The Washington Capitals, after losing Game 1 of the Stanley Cup Final, have won the next three. They are now one win away from the Stanley Cup, their first Stanley Cup in franchise history. They win tonight by a score of 6-2. to two. And I'll start with this, Eric. It was... An interesting game one, a very, very high-scoring game one. Game two was a nail-biter that the Caps pulled out. Braden Holpe made the save of all saves. Washington taking care of business at home and doing it with a lot of depth, with a lot of scoring depth, lines one to four, and really playing lockdown brick wall defense in front of Holpe. We know this is Alex Ovechkin's team. We know Kuznetsov and Backstrom and all the stars. But one to 20, this is a very good team, and they're all performing and showing out when the biggest trophy is on the line. Oh, yeah, it's it's unreal to the level that these guys are clicking at right now. I mean, you look at up and down the the roster, you're getting con- contributions. You have Devontae Smith-Pelly, goals in back-to-back games, big ones late last game, and, you know, it's kind of a kind of keep the momentum on their side in the, in the most previous game. T.J. Oshie's clicking. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom Wilson is all over the ice. He's, he has like, this presence both on the score sheet and on the ice on game in, game out. And then Kuznetsov, like you said, has his fingerprints all over this playoff run. Ovechkin is having a career-defining 
postseason. Hopefully, is clicking. He's locked in. I mean, they, you showed the, you saw the stats during tonight's game. You know, he was on an unreal shutout streak. You know, where he was just locked down for much of the much of the Capitals' play after Game One. The roller coaster was that, but yeah, the Capitals they they're locked in, man. It's it's unreal to kind of think about the Capitals are actually coming through when they when they need it most. And the adversity, that, that's one thing. They've faced adversity every round of these playoffs. They've been trailing at one point or another, sometimes facing elimination games at one point or another, and they've gotten the job done. They've trailed in every series, and only, I think, the 91 Penguins have ever done that. I guess we should start with Holpe because, yeah, game one was not his best performance. Still some chances that I think Vegas just scored some unbelievable goals. But if you take that out of the equation, if you just look at his last, I guess, game six and seven, against Tampa Bay, and then games two to four of this series, so essentially five of his last six games. He's been unstoppable. I mean, you could not score on this guy, it seems. Vegas hit some posts tonight, but some of the saves he's making and some of the uh, job he's done under duress has made him truly remarkable in the playoffs. Funny to believe he didn't start the first two games for the Capitals this run. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. You brought up the adversity, you know, that as a, as a whole that they've kind of experienced as a team, you know, uh, having to come back in games, take in it to game sevens. And, I mean, Holpe is a prime example of the adversity that they've overcome. Like, he didn't start, like, with this team. He wasn't the starter. Grubauer, had, he basically had to wait for Grubauer to fall. And then he had to come with a team that, you know, was looking for him to come in and be lights out. And he has been for the most part. I mean, outside of, you know, a couple of games here and, two, here and there, but, he has been he's been what they've needed and he's come up with a big save countless times, which you know maybe he hasn't done in the past. Yeah, and I think the other side of this to look at with, with how he's played and how he's dialed in has just been that defensive core in front of him. They're doing a good job in most cases. I know we talk about the Capitals offense, Eric, but with Niskanen, with Carlson obviously, who's lining himself up for a big payday this summer with Orpik, with some of the veterans that they have in Orlov as well, you get a sense that they're all gelling together and depth on defense is just as important. We, we always talk about how physical these playoffs are and how guys are getting hurt and who knows what injuries these two teams are playing with. It's kind of nice to have five, six defense you can rely on back there for the Capitals. Yeah, and I think after after what went down in game one, you know, with that this like scoring spree, a lot of those goals came second, third chance opportunities in front. They were really sloppy in front of their net, but They've really locked down, you know, they're clearing out the net, moving the puck the other direction for the most part after, and Holtby's there to save them like he has in the past couple games. So the defense has really been, you know, lights out. Everybody's buying into team defense. I mean, how many – it's surprising when you see highlight reels that show more Ovechkin blocking shots than goals in this series in some instances, you know. So they're all they're all selling out. They know what they want, and they're, they're one game away from it because of it. Well, if we look at Vegas, Eric Roberts here on the Money Mitch Effect, and we look at what – they're struggling with this was a team that you know with a fairy tale ride of making the final in their first year we've all heard the story and it is remarkable even if they do lose lose the next game losing six or seven what have you it's still a great year but I think this is a team that for the first time in a while is facing real adversity they haven't lost they hadn't lost three games in a row until tonight it had been three months since they had done that they kind of coasted a little bit in the playoffs they faced a little bit of adversity against San Jose but it's been a very workmanlike approach they've been kind of floating on cloud nine tonight in game four I'd say mostly tonight was the first time I'd say Eric that they looked like a young and inexperienced team they took some stupid penalties the breaks weren't going their way and they crumbled a little bit would you agree with that yeah no you you kind of get a feel for it. I mean they there was their first home loss on on me 
like first loss on home ice since the Sharks series way back in mm. what seems like last year. You know, the, I mean, yeah. the playoffs are so long. They really haven't, you know, had a, had to fight through much. I mean, and you got a team like the Capitals come through what seems like the trenches. They got past the Sidney Crosby hump. They got past the Steven Stamkos deep series. And, you know, the, the Golden Knights have kind of just been, we're the fun story. This is fun for us. And you are seeing them kind of crumble a little bit. And, you know, I think that James Neal missing that early that early chance really changed the oh, whole yeah. course of that because it was kind of a, a wide-eyed moment, and it looks like they never really rebound from it. And then to top it off, the Capitals come back and just kind of give them a quick little one, two, three punch. And next thing you know, instead of being up 1-0, they're down 3-0 going to the second. It's, it was, it's definitely a, t- a moment in this series or in this playoffs, really, where they're just not really rebounding. Yeah, I mean, we we get a lot of flack sometimes. I, I put myself in there for for maybe hyperbolizing or sensationalizing away how great these hockey players are. That was one where that can't happen. Like, that is blowing a layup in basketball with way more significance on it. That's dropping an easy fly ball in the outfield. Whatever metaphor you want to say. That's a game for a pro. I mean, that'd be – how Neil missed that is unbelievable. And you could tell that it was deflating. The Capitals come back and score – Vegas had to be had to be furious because they were Eric, the better team clearly in that first period yet down three nothing. Yeah, no, and it's it's interesting. They they've ha- they've kind of lost this counterpunch aspect, which is really their their calling card for most of these playoffs. You know, there was a stat that came through I think in game two or three about there had been like eight or nine goals where they scored within a minute and a half, two and a half minutes or so, really quick right after you know they give up a goal, and that was really something that kept them from being put up against the, the a brick wall because they could respond quickly and hit hit back with a counterpunch and they've really lost that i mean the capitals are scoring and they're not scoring they're they're not counterpunching they're just taking the punches and you know really not doing anything to to push back well and they can't rely you know this as well as anyone eric they can't rely on their third and fourth line for primary scoring and that was that's what's been happening i mean neil scored a goal tonight and finally riley smith late but they were getting pretty much all their offense early in the series from the back end they they needed their stars to step up, and it hasn't been the case. No Carlson goals uh, since game one. They really haven't broken through like the Capitol stars. This is it. You need your big guns to show out, especially on the road. Yeah, and, and that's, that's going to be a big moment going back to Vegas. This might be a, you know, a sort of a lifeline for them to kind of you know, try and reset, be shocked back into whatever was going right for them going back to Las Vegas. The big momentum shift, if you know, they can maybe go back and, and steal a game on home ice. Yeah, I mean, we should point out that there's still plenty of time left in this series. We'll see what Vegas. I mean, yeah, you, it's one of those things where it's you know the history of the Capitals, and you can still hear oh, the Capitals lost in seven. You're like, oh well, I guess yeah, that could still happen. It very well could. Uh, I do want to take some time to talk about this Capitals team, and, and if you looked at Game Four, you saw some players really showing out. There's one player in particular that I think doesn't really get, still for some reason, doesn't get enough credit. And that's Nicholas Backstrom, Eric. Again, you know he's been Ovechkin's right hand man. He's been top five in scoring many years in the NHL, and even this playoff season with Kuznetsov and Ovechkin going wild on the stat sheet, Backstrom had a little bit of an injury. Has only played in now 19 playoff games. He's got 21 points, so that's over a point a game. He had two assists tonight. What is it about this guy that doesn't garner the respect he deserves? Because I think we both agree, if he's not the greatest setup man of his generation, he's pretty close. Oh, he's just and he's just so smooth about it. I think that's just uh, that's another his like his demeanor and his like just smooth kind of play. I think just kind of helps him like just fly under the radar because he is on a team with you know some some big play, big name players 
you know, a couple of, you know, people are a little more showy. He does have the Ovechkin shadow casted over him, but he's just so calm and deme- his demeanor is so smooth. You know, he might not be get, have the, you know, like the highlight reel packages that get pumped out everywhere, but he's consistent and, you know, he's playing with one of the best goal scorers that we've ever seen in Ovechkin. So, you know, it's a one-two punch. You wouldn't have Ovechkin without Backstrom, that's for sure. No, and tonight, I mean, Wilson's goal and, and um, the last goal, both of them were set up by Backstrom, where he was coming down the ice, and the Wilson goal, he goes behind the net, sets him up up front with the shot, and the last one on the Oshie reverse shoulder, again, he comes through. I just think this guy makes it as a primary assist, as Conley's, or I shouldn't say Conley's goal, but um, I just think he's the primary assist guy on a lot of big goals for this team, and and he has been for years. He's consistently producing, and you brought up a good point. Ovechkin and stars like that who score the goals get a ton of credit, and they do deserve it, but God, it wouldn't be possible. It wouldn't be as easy, we should say, without a good yeah. setup man like Backstrom. If those, if those, a lot of those one-timers, you know, that Ovechkin's getting off that left wing, a lot of those aren't in the perfect spot if Backstrom's not someone passing them. No, they're not. Um, it, it's been remarkable there. It was Kempney who scored that goal. And uh, Oshie was the one that made the big play. I do want to s- talk about him for a little bit, Eric. TJ Oshie, who has had some ups and downs. I mean, we all know him as the American hero from the shootout against Russia four years ago. His Blues tenure did not end very well. Kind of was scapegoated a little bit for some of their problems. Now he's having a great, great playoffs. I guess the first thing to bring up is this guy can't, he's going to have to take the Metro, right, to every D.C. game if they win the Cup. Oh, man. I mean, after after what everybody did with uh, Marcia Stowe coming in the Lamborghini for Vegas and he had a good game, I mean, it's only right if Oshie rides the, the Metro for a game or two after this. Him and Niskanen taking it. It's been pretty cool to see. We know a lot of athletes do, but we also know hockey players love their traditions and superstitions. So I think that might stay the case. But his game really fits what Washington wants to do. His physicality, I don't think people give him enough credit for how strong he is. He can throw some bone-jarring hits. And his ability on the power play. I mean, I know Ovechkin helps by opening it up, but he's perfect for that role where he's in the middle with his good hands and his ability to finish to really operate with a lot of space. Yeah, he's he's silky smooth, you know, in tight. I mean, and like you mentioned, he's an American hero because we saw what he could do with his hands in a shootout situation. But what he can do in, in tight spaces, quick little flicks of the wrist, gets the puck out, gets the puck into scoring position, He's nasty, and then you said he, he can throw the body. I think Colin Miller learned that plenty well today. There was a couple shifts where he just owned him. And, you know, he's he's a stocky kid, but he has the finish that like, that just fits well. I remember when he did, when he ended up in Washington, I was like, dude, this is a piece that could put them over. I mean, and then, of course, the capital, whole Capitals thing happened, them being themselves. But he's a, he's a huge piece, and he's, he's coming through when they need it. There, there's a lot of players on the Capitals this season that are having career, se- career postseasons where – you're just going to look back in their careers and like this was a, they were a huge part and this will be a forever remembered because of it. I had an issue with uh, the Kepney gold on Oshie. A great reverse shoulder. That's a great play there. But a lot of Vegas fans thought there should be a penalty there on Oshie, and I don't agree with that. But, okay, we've seen that call before. But Colin Miller, he can't stop playing. Like that's the first thing I thought was are you either you're selling a call or you're not, but you got to keep playing. The puck's in your defensive zone. I just I took issue with. Oh that. yeah, no, that's that's yeah, that's 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 on him. I don't. I mean, maybe he's trying to to draw a penalty. I guess it might be a little high because there's a little, that little back pop, but that's only really it. I mean, 
Colin Miller was coming in for the hit. I mean, if anything, T.J. Oshie just kind of braced himself, and Colin Miller came out with the, the worst to wear, and he gave up a goal. So you think he owes somebody dinner, that's for sure. For sure. Well, we know also, too, just pointing out about this game, we know Stanley Cup games get violent. We know that, you know, again, the game two, there was a little scrum. It's been getting chippy. Reeves, Wilson, the big hitters have been going at it. This was the first game where I thought got a, a little on the overly vicious, dirty side, particularly by some of the Vegas players. You know, McNabb's hit, you know, former King McNabb, his hit on Oshie was pretty dirty. And one of my favorite types of scrums where the team sees the replay for the first time and goes nuts. That took place. I, I thought this might have been a little too much, especially for a team like Vegas that's going to need to get back in this series and not just turn it into a gong show. But I don't know how you saw the end of this game. I thought it was a little little much on the scrums. No, yeah, you definitely had that feel. I mean, once, you know, they kind of, once they got back within two, you're like, okay, this game could be a little tight. But, you know, then they stretched it back out after that Colin Miller play, and then there's a dirty play, and then I think the teams kind of realize, okay, this one's probably done. And then that's when the shaping is picked up, because if you think about it, that's really the, the, the latest it's been when it's not really competitive. You know, you've had the, even the marathon game where there was a bunch of goals in game one. They were still pretty close throughout, throughout. But this was the first time, you know, I think they kind of felt like, okay, this one's in the books. We can probably go to the box and maybe send a message here and there and not feel like we're hanging our team out to dry. And, you know, when you get in the, the Golden Knights, they really only have Reeves. If they want to play this, I don't think they're going to come out on the, on the winning side of a physical game. Yeah, that's a good point. Washington probably has the depth, the tough guy depth overall. Uh, given you take Reeves out of the equation, you're not winning yeah, a lot of battles. Yeah, he really so. got nobody else to go up against. You know, Wilson, Oshie, Devontae, Spitelli, Ovechkin. Ovechkin can throw around the body. Like, I don't think I don't think the Golden Knights want to get into a a physical match with them. Yeah, Smith Pelly, another one. Two goals in back to back games, another player showing out. Uh, but it is the stars for the Capitals. We move along here, Money Mitch Effect with Eric Roberts. If I told you, Eric, that in the last 20 years, there's only been two players, and I guess one player in particular that had more points in the playoffs than Kuznetsov, it was Malkin in 2009. Crosby had 31 in 2009. That's what Kuznetsov has, and we're not done playing hockey. 31 points. For Evgeny Kuznetsov, it's just been beautiful to watch, too. And 31 points is 31 points, Eric, but it's been pretty as well. So I think that's just an added bonus with his game. Oh, yeah. No, he's um, he's been lights out. He has his fingerprints all over all over the, the, the score boxes and throughout the playoffs. And he, he, if there's anybody that gets the, the, the cup after Ovechkin, I mean, he should definitely be a strong candidate. I don't know if that's thinking too far ahead, but I always love the game, the, the who does Ovechkin or who does the captain hand it to after after he gets his turn with it yeah he, he's been good and and we don't want to call shots on who should win certain awards but there's some tough decisions there if things go according to plan the pterodactyl celebration is taking over dc there's a lot of personality in this kid too which i like to see but we do know that it's still alex ovechkin's team and i've just been thoroughly impressed with easily the greatest postseason of his career for a lot of reasons but how about this for first he didn't even flinch when he got hit in the face with the puck. That <laughs> talk about locked in, right? Like, it's insane. He, yeah, it's insane. He's a peak athletic mode where he doesn't exert any energy if it's not going to be worth the pain. I guess he's. It's insane. I. Uh, he's a machine. It's crazy. Yeah, in, in the reactions, the gifts online that of him just being funny and being serious and, and, and just living and dying. You could tell he's locked in, and he knows that he might not get any more chances. Might never be this close again. Here's what's stating out to me. It's obviously the hits are one thing, 
where it's not so much the goals, but when he's a freight train running down the ice and he just runs people over and he's on a mission and you just don't want to get in his way. But the thing that stood out to me, Eric, is in any big game, in a do-or-die game, Game 7 at Tampa Bay, down 1-0 against Vegas, when you need Alex Ovechkin, he's scored. He's showed up. He's locked in. He He's willing to not play selfish hockey, would be one way to put it, when he doesn't have to, but when he needs to, when the team needs a goal, needs a big play, has their back up against the wall, he's delivered. And I mean, I've just it's just been a joy to watch. We're both Ovechkin apologists, and I don't think you can find many things to criticize if you're on the outside looking at number eight right now. Oh, yeah, I know. This is definitely like a career-defining playoff for him. His all-around game has just developed in so in such a great way. And, and like I said earlier, like when the, this, a lot of these highlight packages that they're rolling out between plays, between periods, it's about his overall pay. It's about his, his contributions in the corner, breakouts, you know, throwing the body in front of a puck here and there. They're not, they're not, even, they're not really just, hey, he's an offensive threat now. He's an all-around player. And when, like you said, when his team needs him, he's firing the puck, he's, he's contributing, and he makes everybody around him better. Yeah, and he is one win away from his first Stanley Cup, a chance to have his name etched on the greatest trophy in all of sports. We'll see what happens. Uh, I do want to say it sounds like we're, we're crowning the Capitals. We are not. There are still three potential games left in this series. The Capitals have to close it out. They have to win one more. And let's not forget, Vegas has gone on winning streaks in these playoffs. They swept the Kings four straight there. They were tied 2-2 with the Sharks, won a big game six on the road, a big closeout game after winning game five. And then after losing game one to Winnipeg, won four straight and really won a lot of tight hockey games in that one with a lot of players stepping up. So knowing that they have two games, Eric, on their on their home ice potentially, how can Vegas get back in this series and then make it competitive and ultimately have a chance to win it? Well, I mean, it, it's sports cliche, but, you know, it's from here on out. So you got to take it one shift at a time. and they got to focus on game five here back at home. A, a home win can mean a lot because, you know, you win game five, and then there's just two games left. And all you got to do is steal one road game, and you got game seven at home ice. And then it's a wild, wild west, and you have no clue what happens. But you don't get there without winning and taking care of home ice first. And, and then you see, you've seen Washington can be spotty at home. They play, don't play well at home sometimes. And, but you still have to win game five first and, and it, just live to play another day. Take it one shift at a time. It's sports cliche, but that's as, as simple as it gets. And I know we mentioned the Capitals, but I did see a stat just now on Twitter. They've blown more three-one leads than any sports franchise in North America. <laughs> I mean, that's that. It's believable. <laughs> it's got to be, yeah, man. It's got to be in the back of people's heads. I mean, I'm sure everybody's having this conversation right now, like, "Ooh, they could do it." But then it was like, "But they are the Capitals," you know. It's, it's, it sucks to say, but it's got to be in the back of so many of the even people on that team's head that's been through this already. Right, and knowing also the uh, what is it? The most I got to count here. The Five famous words that are going to get them a little nervous. The cup is in the building. That's oh, six yeah. words, I think. Yeah. No, that's five. The cup, the cup is no it's six words. But yeah, still, either way, <laughs> the cup's going to be there. So they'll know that it's there and that they could be celebrating. And the point being, it's going to make them a little tense, you know, knowing that the oh, one went away. So I, I grip the sticks a little tighter. That could throw off your entire game. I want that Magic Johnson philosophy in that uh, in the Washington locker room. Pack lightly, you know. We we want to win the championship. We're not trying to to. Uh, I know they'd be going back to D.C., but we want to go for a business trip. Obviously, if you win, mm-hmm. you can have a little fun after. But you don't want to think, oh, we you know we got Game Six at home. 
You want to take care of business as soon as possible because if you lose game five, Vegas has got to win. They've got they're, they're buzzing a little bit more. And that game six, if it does go back to Washington, it might be a little tense environment if it's tied late going into the third or, or potentially an overtime situation. Yeah, because I'm sure, I mean, a stadium full of D.C. sports fans in that situation cannot be cannot be not tense. Like, that's, there's no way they could have, it could be free drinks before, let everybody get the nerves out. But a D.C. arena in that situation with a, a, a possible closeout and then you could blow it, there's no way nobody, everybody in that whole arena isn't on edge. So the biggest on ice, Eric, the big, that's a great point. The biggest on ice uh, adjustment that I think the Knights need to make, two, twofold really, defensively, they got to tighten up their coverage. Fleury hasn't played great, but I think we're starting to see that when you over-rely on a guy to be amazing, he is a human being, and you can't sustain just ridiculous save after ridiculous save. A couple goals tonight were just bad coverage in their defensive zone. they got to shore, it up, shore that up and give him a chance. And it's what we were saying earlier. The Stars got to show out. They need that first line. They need Carlson, Neal, Riley Smith at home. If they get a power play, they've got to score on it because that's the easiest way to kickstart their offense as well. So those are, those are to me, they're one of the best teams breaking the puck out of the ice. They move in waves. They're so fast. You need to get back to that, play up and down hockey and make Washington play their game and not vice versa. Yeah, and I, you know they, they they're a really slow team. You know, they, a lot of there's a lot of whistles, a lot of chunks here and there. Like they, like you said, they're really good with transition plays. So they got to flow, stay out of the box. So it's all this, like we said earlier, the, the the physicality. They're not going to win it anyway. So they need to keep the play moving, get up and down the ice, play to their their chances, play to their speed, which is really their their biggest key. It's going to be exciting, Eric. Uh, I'll I'll leave you with this. What do you think? How do you think this will play out? Caps in five, six, seven, or do the Knights climb all the way back? Uh, I'm going to go Caps in six. Uh, I think I think Vegas will have has one more ounce of magic in them to get, get a, maybe a, a home win. But then I think I think Washington will close it out on home ice. I agree. Been if, very... if it goes seven, man, I don't think <laughs> I don't think they're coming out of seven. That's for sure. See, I I still think. The way Washington's responded all year, even if it went to seven, they could still have a chance there. Then they'd probably switch to underdogs. But, yeah, I like Caps in six. Vegas has been good at home all year. I think they'll hold serve. Washington kind of came out in game four tonight like they were desperate, like they knew they needed to have this one because of how good Vegas was at home. I'll say Caps in six. We'll see if six is like that L.A. Kings, New Jersey Devils celebration or if it's like the... Or, or if it's like when they had to play the Rangers and it went into overtime. You know, well, I'm trying to figure yeah. out which Kings Cup it would be like. Um, but we know, hey, what if, Ovi, what if Ovechkin wins the Cup in Vegas? That would be a night for the ages. In that case, they should be packed light, but only light because they're bringing one business suit and then the rest are just their trunks for a, a couple of days in Vegas. Because then I, I guess they would have ended up there anyways, right? Yeah, I, man, <laughs> we've been waiting a long time for a champion to, for a champion to be clinched in Las Vegas. So just to think, like, because it's a, it's a destination, it's usually a day or two after, but to be in the moment to where you could walk outside after winning your first Stanley Cup and you're on the Vegas Strip. I don't know yeah, what I to mean, expect. I think, oh, I think baby, the Cavs got tough. the closest. The Cavs stopped over when they beat the, the Warriors. So they just had a little detour. But, yeah, they're definitely just walking out of T-Mobile and seeing, uh, what, what is it, the New York, New York, right mm-hmm. across the street. Probably an, an ideal situation. Definitely got to worry. Don't got to worry about a, a ride home, I guess. No, no. That cup's ending up in the fountain at Bellagio for sure, uh, if that's the case. One With Ovechkin riding it, probably. <laughs> probably, <laughs> probably. But Eric Roberts, this was fun. 
a blast as always. We'll definitely be in touch to talk more hockey and see how this one develops. But thanks again for coming on the Money Mitch Effect. Oh, no problem, man. Anytime. Huge thanks again to Eric Roberts for hopping on the show to discuss hockey all year round, especially. But we know how much it means this time with the Capitals one game away. 3-1 game. Five is on Thursday. And that could be the party of of the century if indeed it does happen and the Capitals win in Vegas. My, my goodness. All right. Next up is Bradford Runs. You might recall a year ago we had a very similar conversation about the Cavs and Warriors. And I texted Bradford before this finals. He said again he couldn't bet against LeBron James. And I get that logic. He's been amazing. But this Warriors team is something else. Again, looks like a lot to overcome for the Cavs. They're down 2 nothing in the series. We talked about game one. What exactly was the cause for that loss? J.R. Smith, George Hill, questionable officiating. Were the Warriors, or are they just too good? We break down that as well as game two and the rest of what's on tap in the finals. It's Bradford Bruns here now on the Money Mitch Effect. All right, now joining us on the Money Mitch Effect to talk NBA Finals with a very, very bad case of deja vu. Bradford Bruns, front of the show. Bradford, I know it's bittersweet, but thanks for joining the program. Mitch, it is always my pleasure. It is always my pleasure, despite, you know, what the tone may suggest and so forth. Encore, encore. Let's lick the wounds all over again and try to rifle through no shortage of topics, my friend, from first couple of games. My goodness. So I have a lot to say, and it's interesting. We talked about this, that we do a lot of playoff previews and and just general NBA talk where we're moving from team to team, trying to capture as many storylines as we can. By the time we get to finals, it's pretty simple. This is what is happening. This is the only game in town, the only show in town, and we have to break down some very specific stuff in greater detail. Knowing that, I don't think we could have predicted how much there is to break down after two games. The Warriors are up two games to none. It was a bloodbath in Game 2. It was within six points in the second half, but it didn't really feel that close. Still, everybody wants to talk about, and I think when we do recap the finals, whenever they end, I don't think we're going to be making bold predictions saying more people are going to be talking about Game 1. Bradford, that was the game that the Cavs probably should have and definitely, I think, had to have, and they didn't. They lose that game in overtime. Let's start there. Let's start with a 124 to 114 overtime win for the Warriors, a game that was tied at 107 at the end of regulation. And you could say wasted LeBron's best postseason game ever. I just, I, there's a lot to break down. George Hill missing a free throw, J.R. Smith forgetting the score, some questionable referee officiating. But what, if anything, stood out to you about that game, about the missed opportunities for the Cavs in game one? Well, you know, Mitch, and I'm never going to pass up an opportunity to laud number 23 accordingly to extol his virtues to sometimes, let's be honest, really engage in quite a bit of hyperbole. But you could throw any number of, of adjectives. You could throw all the praise, lavish all that in the world on LeBron James based on his performance in game number one, and he would have been wholly deserving of exactly those precise accolades. I don't think that we've seen a transcendent performance in the NBA Finals along those lines in terms of doing absolutely everything offensively. And then let's say it for a fair 
percentage of the game as well, competing, accepting the challenge defensively too, and 51 points along with everything else with respect to that box score completely goes for naught. And you can talk about a lot of the other ancillary elements. You can look at some secondary storylines such as, you know, what he was able to do in terms of just from a physical perspective, able to persevere, shoot that effectively from the floor too, despite the exceedingly blurred vision. He was a revelation that's been the course throughout the entire playoffs, but what happened down the stretch and time after time, we talk about it, how LeBron is going to get his regardless. He's going to try to single-handedly deliver as much as he can in the way of perhaps another championship, or at least those are the aspirations. But mm-hmm. when you are continuously met with setback after setback, self-inflicted wound after self-inflicted wound from your teammates, I'm not going to get into yet how they did rise to the occasion, a fair number of them in game number two, despite what the final score would have suggested, but when that repeatedly comes back to bite you, one man still, one of the greats of all time, can only accomplish so much. And you saw just the overall, the sheer limitations, once again, Mitch, of this roster, of this roster makeup. Yes, a roster that was in many different ways orchestrated by King James himself, but what can you do when you have the all-time brain cramp of all-time brain cramps to conclude regulation? We knew that the outcome from that point forward was determined. Yeah, you know, I, I sometimes you just have to laugh at certain things like this. J.R. Smith's brain cramp was the all-time brain cramp. It would be a mistake that you would, you know, I spent a year coaching uh, youth hockey. You get mad at kids for making that mistake. You can't, you, you got to have situational awareness at all times. But it goes beyond J.R. Smith having a brain cramp. Tyron Lue had a timeout. That's part of this. Tyron Luke could have called timeout or could have yelled from the bench to call timeout, and you still could have had two seconds or so left. George Hill's an 80% free throw shooter. He misses that free throw. These were all things down the stretch that did not go the Cavs' way that they had in their own hands. And as bad as some of the calls were in game one, and there were some pretty bad ones, you still had a chance. I'm a big believer, and you know this, Bradford, and you have a chance. you got to come through. you got to make the plays. And... Overtime, I mean, that video that was published, I think, late yesterday, early this morning, uh, as we record this Monday night, Monday afternoon. Right. That video of the Cavs bench with that team so deflated, with LeBron coming to the realization that they had a timeout, that they didn't use it, there was no way they were going to win overtime. And, and it's hard to say that LeBron or Lou was in, in, the, in the blame, so to speak, for not rallying the troops. But if you don't have if you don't have anyone rallying the troops in that situation, or at least giving an attempt, I couldn't see a single way that they were going to win in overtime. It was very deja vu of the 2015 finals, if you remember game one where they had a chance at the buzzer, didn't come through, and then the Warriors just blitzed an OT there as well. So that was the first thing I thought there was just flashbacks of an opportunity wasted. No, that, no doubt about it. It was preordained at that juncture. You had the suspicion, you had the feeling, Mitch, that the Warriors would proceed to run away with it in overtime, and that's precisely what Golden State did, and credit Golden State for once again seizing that opportunity in a game around which everything, all the fortunes, if the Cavs had any any prospects of being able to make it a competitive series, you have to claim that by the bay at Oracle Arena. Squandered entirely too many chances, and even more so, I think, Mitch, I really actually appreciated for fair stretches of that game of game number one, the intensity with which the Cavs competed on the defensive end in terms of closing out, actually being able to rotate, getting out on the shooters, and to be fair as well, Golden State missed an influx of three-pointers. 
Cleveland had to recognize everybody, casual observers, hardcore, diehard NBA fans, everybody recognized that the Warriors, at least relative to what we saw in game number one, it wasn't going to occur again. They weren't mm-hmm. going to miss that many wide-open looks, weren't going to waste that many opportunities, and what precisely happened on Sunday evening. That's yeah. right. You saw Golden State come out and just light up the joint from top to bottom. Steph Curry is going to get all of the ink, and rightfully so, for setting a new finals record for single-game three-pointers made. But when you are spacing the floor to that degree, when you are dealing with or competing against a Cleveland squad that is thoroughly outmanned in that capacity, too, and certain players who have performed vital, vital functions in the preceding rounds, <coughs> Kyle Korver, are rendered completely irrelevant, then you know what the recipe is going to be. And now we are seeing those striking, striking constraints with which LeBron, more than anyone else, has to operate. Well, you know the Warriors, Bradford, they've done this in these playoffs. They've had that switch they've lacked being fully engaged at times. The difference last round is Houston won those games. That's why this series that's why that series won seven games. They had a couple games where the Warriors were like in game one, not fully playing Chris, making turnovers, missing shots. The Rockets were able to execute, extend that series. The Cavs had to win game one. We knew it was going to happen in game two, uh, just given how great LeBron played, and yet it still wasn't enough. You knew that there was a ceiling to get to. As I continue chatting with Bradford Bruns on the Money Mitch effect, and just on the topic of Corver and some of the players like J.R. Smith who aren't playing well, I think Corver, I think it's a good adjustment by the Warriors. He's not going to create his own shot. They're chasing him around every screen like he's Steph Curry, and that's what the, the respect level is. I just don't think he's getting open. Exactly. No, that's exactly the case. And you had some of those worries. You had some of those qualms, at least I did, looking at it from through that Cleveland lens entering the series because you're well aware of the athletic, the sheer athletic limitations there. That's not to say that the guy doesn't compete as hard as anyone in the league. We were well aware of that during the Boston series and so forth, Indiana as well. The fact of the matter is that he doesn't possess that lateral quickness. He can't quite get off of the screens, off of the curls to the same degree. And that's one less option for which Golden State has to account. And he's and I 36. Think last night, Mitch, when you're talking about <laughs> he's, he's, he's 36, there's a lot of tread on, on those tires. Now, 23 won't have any of those excuses, of course, no. but that is the sobering reality. And talking about the bench components there for just a moment, too, in game number two, now I understand that it ends up looking completely laughable at the very end as far as the overall deficit, the overall score is concerned. But that's in large part due to not only what you saw from Steph Curry, not only the the attack mode that was presented for Kevin Durant in game number two right off the bat, but the fact that Steve Kerr knows he can get ready-made contributions from some of his bench members. Sean Livingston, now he's not going to continue to shoot in a perfect fashion from the field, but he is exactly what this team needs for Golden State, especially filling that void right now that is left, that is vacated, by the lack of an Andre Iguodala. You're getting that. I think an astute adjustment also is made insofar as you're running McGee out there. You're able to actually see him rolling to the basket. Now, he's going to be as clumsy, yes, as unorthodox as they come, but that is a size mismatch right there for which, once again, Cleveland cannot account, and it has given them fits at least for little stretches, little bursts from here to there, and that's just something else that you add to the list of things really that Cleveland just cannot handle at this juncture. I know you're going back to Cleveland. I know that you have that extra day from Wednesday to Friday. That's going to be a bear of it. But going back, all things considered, to the queue right now, the note on which that game, game number two ended, Mitch, hmm, most inglorious of ways. 
Yeah, and to get to game two, I want to point out one thing. We're going to get to Curry and his brilliance in a second, but the game started with, what, 22 points early in the paint? I mean, Golden State was getting layup after layup. They were living in the paint, and I know McGee played well, and Livingston, those guys were perfect, but to be fair, or I guess to be fair to how bad the Cavs' defense was, it was pretty bad. So you were giving up layups in addition to letting some some brilliant shot-making go in. All I thought about in Game 2, Bradford, and why I said at the top of the show why, even when it was 6, you never felt like it was close. There was a stretch when LeBron was going, when Love was knocking down shots, Hill was going off in the third quarter, where you thought Cleveland's offense is playing about as good as it can, and they weren't making up any serious ground. They weren't getting any stops, and you knew that eventually water would reach its level for the Cavs on offense. But that's that's the area of the game. I mean, the Cavs' offense is, is getting in the hundreds when they score in regulation, but they just cannot stop this Golden State team. The Cavs were doing their best in the third quarter of game number two, Mitch, to try to imitate the Warriors' third quarter act, right? The usual third quarter stanza, but with Golden State continuing to operate so efficiently, so seamlessly in transition, that's where the acceleration, that's where that next level speed and burst comes in. Just reverting to your thoughts, your sentiments regarding the first quarter for all the great things that Kevin Love accomplished offensively in that second half, in that third quarter, what you absolutely have to stress more than anything else, in my opinion, going back to Cleveland for game number three, if you're to have even a semblance of a chance of competing in the game, period. I'm not talking about winning multiple games or, or trying to really make this a series, so to speak, but just to, to win a game, perhaps prevail on one occasion. You have to open with the requisite intensity along the interior in the paint. And I don't care if it's McGee once again starting for the Warriors. I don't care if Draymond Green is actually able to bulldoze his way into the paint and make some offensive contributions in the early going. You have to figure out a way, especially if you're Kevin Love, if you're Tristan Thompson or Larry Nance, to be able to assert oneself right there in that area because to allow Golden State, a team such as that, when you already know you're going to be operating at a decisive disadvantage with respect to the threes, threes raining down upon you, if you're allowing them to get the second and third opportunities to keep possessions alive, to extend possessions, and for all intents and purposes, dominate the board, mm, I, I can't even envision how ugly it could conceivably get from here. Well, Bradford, uh, this is the deja vu episode, I guess, because we had all these, a lot of these same talks last year. We're two games into the finals, and yet again, Curry's got more rebounds than Tristan Thompson. So, I mean, we can just... <laughs> it's inexplicable. I mean, what, like, it's, it's we, inexplicable. the series is over if that keeps going. Like, it'll be a sweep. Like that's, I mean, if Tristan Thompson can't out guard, out rebound the point guard on the other team, sorry, with the rest of the roster Cleveland has, there's just no way. I do no, wanna, he's I, not. I do, he's not worried though. Don't make. <laughs> don't make me walk off here. Allah, PT. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. There's a lot. He's going non-plus. On for him. There's a lot. Yeah, I think that's the least of his worries right now. Um. All right, Bradford Bruns, Money Mitch Effect. I do want to go back to game one for a second, and I don't think that this was the reason that they lost, but there was a pretty controversial overturn of a block charge in that game. Looked like LeBron got in position. There was some movement. It was originally called a charge. He was out of the restricted area by a couple yep. of feet. They overturned it. Again, I'm not a, a not a one-call person that, that decides the outcome of a game, and I know that it's basketball officiating and everybody has their issues, but do you think it's gotten worse specifically – the refereeing had, quality has deteriorated, and what do you think about this decision to review something that a lot of people, myself included, didn't even know was eligible to be reviewed? Mm-hmm. Well, add Tyron Lue to the company there, the incredulous-looking, <laughs> incredulous delivery. 
<laughs> expression on his face after game number one indicated all of that, Mitch. And to be completely candid, I've really found the officiating throughout the course of the entire playoffs, Eastern Conference playoffs, Western Conference finals, what have you, to be exceedingly putrid. You could really have pinpointed, you could have nitpicked a couple of different points, a ton of different points for that matter during the Boston Cleveland series. And you would have really found yourself lacking, I think for justification or for answers and for game number one to really, at least prior to the last couple of seconds, pivot on an instance such as that, when you are truly talking about making that judgment call in the heat of the moment to then go over to the monitor, to overturn it at that point, to take it out in a sense, to take it out of the player's hands, I found that to be striking. I found it to be, I can't necessarily say altogether surprising, though, insofar as what we had viewed up until that point in game number one, Mitch. But the shocking nature of it and the fact that we just had not seen that sort of series of events play out during the course of any prior game, despite what Kevin Durant may have said about a regular season affair a few months prior. On that stage, for that to have happened, for that to have been overturned, was really, really something. And obviously it resonated with a lot of fans, I think, of the sport have resonated with a lot of these so-called insiders and whatnot. But I think there are several different issues that you have to truly dig into and investigate following this postseason. I've got to tell you, my friend, because irrespective of what happened there with the overturn call, the reverse call, I think the, the nature right now, the rate at which you are seeing basically the latch-on fouls, obscuring or deterring fast breaks going the other way. I don't necessarily think that we're going to get a fundamental overhaul in the rules department from Adam Silver. I don't think we're at that particular point, but I think there are a lot of things that are detracting from the manner in which the game is being played right now. The purity of it that you are seeing as far as being bogged down in just certain trends that aren't going away anytime soon. They're being exploited as well by these talented players Add to that list as well, in my opinion, guys repeatedly launching themselves and then drawing fouls on the opposing defender, whereas by the classic nature, the letter of the law, it should be an offensive foul as well. That's right, Steph Curry. I'm looking at you last night, <laughs> corner, fourth quarter there. But it's just, it's a mountain. It's a heap right now of offenses, Mitch. And I think they're becoming more and more egregious with each passing day. And I understand how difficult it is to officiate at that level, but something does have to change and it needs to change sooner rather than later in my opinion right in the moment that play could have gone either way my big issue is the same issue i have with the sport of hockey with the sport of football you've got to let some room for human error we can't have everything be reviewed it's going to disrupt the flow of the game and sometimes you just have to mm-hmm. make those tough calls a call is going to go your way or it's not going to go your way and you move on i would think that the same reason they put this review in place is the same reason they put offsides in hockey they don't want an egregious goal some egregious bad call to determine a playoff game but now we're going to do every single review and we're going to pause the game and we're going to break down to see and now referees can say well we don't know about this we're going to use the we're going to use the exception because clearly it looked like everybody knew he was out of the restricted area era area but they didn't know for sure so we're going to use that as an exception to review it i don't like it i don't like a lot of reviews it's just not how i think sports were meant to be play tough calls are hard if they would have called it a block in the moment, I don't think a lot of people would have been completely outraged, but how they overturned it was was a mistake. And I, and I do think that the way you describe some of the other things, they needed to have a long, hard look at replays, at fouls. It's like anything. I mean, I think they've had this issue for some time, but when you have these issues on the biggest stage now, now more people are seeing it, more people are upset, and the commotion gets louder. I think refereeing is a hard yeah, job, especially it. in basketball, but 
it's got to be better at the highest stage. You got the most viewers, the most eyeballs. You got to do a better job. Yeah, not to hop on the shoulders of Jeff Van Gunny, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I do. I do. And he has a lot to say about that. Um, but Bradford, about Curry's game too, a lot's been said about him as one of the greatest, if not the greatest shooter of all time. Well, he broke two records in game two, most threes in finals history, passing oddly enough LeBron James and making nine in that game two. There really isn't much you can do. I mean, you can see LeBron's reaction and, and other Cavs players because I do agree with what Van Gundy said. A lot of that was good defense. Not much you can do when Steph gets going like that except, I don't know, try to run him off the three-point line as much as you can, but where is the three-point line for him? It seems like he keeps moving it back. Exactly. There's no limit to that range, and I was under the impression, Mitch, that Ringling Brothers had actually shut down, but when you see him turn Oracle Arena into his own personal ocean, and he is launching from 35 feet, and he's making those shots with that degree of difficulty, I don't know how you can fault Kevin Love. In that instance, I don't know how you can fault these guys, these perimeter defenders actually really going beyond their limitations as far as Cleveland is concerned, being able to stay in front. And yet with that combination of the ridiculous handle to go along with the marksmanship, is he if he is able to do that along with a fair amount of dribble penetration. And I will say as well, I will readily admit competing much better. This year on both ends of the floor, I am seeing that. I'm seeing that with regularity. Now, it helps when you are able to sit on the bench for more long stretches, obviously. That's what Golden State is able to do. But my goodness gracious, for all of the flack that he has taken from some people regarding past finals performances, he's out with a vengeance in 2018, Mitch, because at this point, you can say everything you want about LeBron single-handedly trying to spur the Cavaliers on to victory or just keeping them competitive in these settings. But Steph Curry has been, you don't want to say, you can't possibly say, given the way in which LeBron has played, has has been the best player, the pure, unadulterated best player on the floor. But he has certainly been that. He has been the transformative difference maker for Golden State. He hasn't experienced any lulls. He's picking up the extra slack. When Kevin Durant isn't being as decisive, Steph Curry is doing everything and proving himself worthy of potentially garnering that hardware too which is seemingly the only thing he doesn't have on display in his grip he's golden state's favorite son i'm not going to say it's his team versus durant's team i don't really like that argument when you have two players of that caliber yeah but it's a different vibe when he takes over a game in oracle like it just feels different it's like i think chris broussard said it's like a religious experience and that anything can happen anything can happen exactly he gives you that feeling I want to say one other thing, too, before we put a bow on this, uh, Bradford. I respect the veteran presence, the toughness, the tenacity that a guy like Kendrick Perkins brings. But I was always taught being brought up that it's kind of hard to take someone serious when they're not in a uniform and they're in a suit. And I know (laughs) what he's doing there, what his role is on that team. But if anything, it just sparked Curry to go off even further. So that's that's all I'm saying. I I don't want to get on his bad side either, but... You know, you woke a sleeping three-point giant, Kendrick. That's all I'm saying. I was wondering when we would get to the inevitable tale of the tape. There you have it. The man, okay, here's, here's my premise, though, Mitch. If when he actually suited up, he was incapable of moving his feet, his knees, his legs, <laughs> did you expect anything less? That's, less good. That's, that's the best defense. That is the best argument for that is I didn't move my feet. I had a friend say it was... Uh, one of the worst running forms he's ever seen, too. So, 
Uh, man. Well, look, I just I think some of these confrontations, especially in basketball, are, are a little ridiculous. I like good trash talk. You know, Draymond Tristan notwithstanding, LeBron, Clay, Steph going at it, that's good. I want to see more of that in the NBA Finals. I think that's fine. More of that? Fewer pom-poms? Fewer pom-poms, though? (laughs) Yeah, fewer pom-poms from the guys on the court. And, uh, yeah, I would assume, as we put a bow on this with the Cleveland Cavaliers and maybe what they can do to make this a series, Ty Lue's been up and down, mostly down with some of his rotational minutes. Can we agree on one thing? No more Jordan Clarks in this series? I, all right, he you know that an assist in like somebody two who months. covered Mizzou. <laughs> That's really not an exaggeration. No. Although I'm not sure to whom else you turn in the backcourt, unless you're going to. I would voluntarily, I would willingly give over the keys for a few minutes to Jose Calderon. Mm. I truly would, as opposed to a Rodney Hood, the return of the Jedi. Setting, I know, I understand, but who else is honestly going yeah. to fill up a few minutes? If you have to roll with anyone, someone who's going to play under control, who isn't going to inflict further woes for this team of the individual variety, I truly would turn to the veteran. I honestly would. It may be completely irrelevant, immaterial in the grand scheme of things, but why has he not proceeded to get off the bench until roughly two minutes remain in a 20-point game? Yeah, He's not I, going to hurt you. I mean, Dwayne Wade's not walking through that door, so I, it, <laughs> I just I don't know what else you can do. And... Yeah, Clarkson has just been so horrendously bad. It's almost it's almost comical to say, yeah, the assist numbers. He comes in game – I mean, the, uh, what game was it? Boston game five, I think he had 10 shots in 15 minutes. He's not looking to pass. He's not making enough shots to really be effective there. We talk about LeBron and how great he is, but he's already looking kind of tired, and understandably so, through two games. I know they're getting days off, Bradford, but he's superhuman, but he's still a man. He's still immortal, and – I can't I can't see it. I can't see unless you get something from somebody outside of Love and, and even George Hill, gotta give him credit, he's he is actually playing pretty well. Unless you get yeah. something else, there's there's really nothing there, especially on the defensive side. You need another weapon. And it's easy to say in retrospect, Mitch, but yesterday when you knew you were still talking about a double digit deficit with eight, nine minutes to go in the fourth quarter. He was fatigued. He was winded. He needed to come out of the game and save at least some fraction of energy right then, right there, right then. Didn't happen. You, you were just belaboring, basically, the point, delaying the inevitable. He ends up staying out there with the exception of just the last few minutes anyway. So, And even to wit, yesterday as well, I'm not saying that he was matched up against Durant going toe-to-toe with him for 40-plus minutes, but you did see more of that possession to possession. So, yes, short of a miracle here, you very well could be saying, sad face and everything, sad face and all, that the final two games, to think that perhaps the second stretch of LeBron, LeBron in the uh, Crimson, Wine and Crimson, could come to an end in Cleveland too. Mm. It's tough to stomach, buddy. Tough to stomach. It is. Uh, we'll have to see what happens. But if there's anything you know LeBron's going to rally and not going to go down uh, without putting it all on the floor in this latter stage of his career, he's shown that. I just don't know what what is enough, what else more he could do. He went for 51, 8, and 8, I think it was, in game one, and that wasn't enough. Man, you, you got to wonder there. Uh, we'll see what happens, Bradford. I'm excited. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, if there's a comeback, we'll get you on for sure. But if not, uh, I don't know. College football's coming around, and uh, I'm a big fan of uh, a recent Supreme Court ruling. So there's a lot to talk about in the fall. <laughs> 
Oh, just imagine the rate at which I'm rubbing my hands together right now, Delaware? my friend. There's are no we, question about that. Go to but in the here and now, yes, I, I have the feeling that in the near, very near future on the not too distant horizon, I'll have to console one Rodney Hood about his free agency prospects. So maybe we can get into that shortly, too. Maybe, maybe. And draft coming up as well. Bradford Brunts, thanks again for coming on the Money Mitch Effect. Love it, buddy. Thank you very much. Enjoy. And that's it for today's episode of The Money Mitch Effect. Thanks again to Eric Roberts and Bradford Bruns for appearing on the show. Thanks to Brian Nelson, recent birthday boy Brian Nelson, for supplying the logo. Tim Adams for supplying the beat. And thanks to everybody out there for listening. You can find this podcast and all the episodes of The Money Mitch Effect on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. Leave a rating, review, or subscribe if you so choose. I'm on Twitter at MoneyMitchM21. And check us out the Money Mitch Effect Facebook page. Just as it's spelled, every episode in recent memory is on there. We're trying to get some more up, a best of as well in the future. I also want to say my deepest condolences to the family of Dwight Clark. Dwight Clark passing away of ALS at the age of 61. He was the legendary tight end for the San Francisco 49ers. Caught the catch, the famous pass from Joe Montana to beat the Cowboys. Uh, back back in the day and um, was an executive as well. I just want to say I'm, I'm sorry to hear that he passed. I'm hopeful that he's pain-free, resting in peace in a better place right now. Uh, ALS um, holds a special place. That, that terrible disease has, uh, has cost me a family member as well, so I know a little bit about what that family is going through. My deepest uh, condolences again. I hope that one day we can all work to find a cure towards that disease. But Dwight Clark, rest in peace. I do hope, I do believe you're in a better place. By all accounts, I'm a stand-up guy and a great, great teammate and friend. So rest in peace, Dwight Clark. This was the Money Mitch Effect. Hope you enjoy the hockey and basketball over the next few days. Don't know how many more games we have left. And until next time, I am Mitch Michaels. This was the Money Mitch Effect. Keep watching, keep enjoying sports.